0: quick one if you'd like to support us on our journey to a thousand please do consider subscribing or following this podcast wherever it is you're to this thank you
1: and actually art is about freedom of expression so most of the time when you create art whether it's a poem a song um a painting a dance it's coming from your heart and your soul and your yeah. guts and where that comes from maybe your lived experience it may be something else, but the fact is you shouldn't have to define yourself by your race or your gender or undefine yourself because of those things.
0: Zita Holborn is an artist and an activist, a woman who's on a mission to create a more just, fair and equitable society. Well, we need racism
1: to end, but we need all discrimination to end because we are not just one thing. Yeah, we're, um, we 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 are women. We're disabled. We're LGBT plus. Yeah, we're young. We're old. So we face double and multiple discrimination as black people. Um, the government wants to push through legislation that introduces offshoring of refugees who um, arrive by small boat and we've seen just now recently about what they want to do in terms of processing people. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's a breach of human rights. Um, they want to push small boats of refugees back into the English Channel, risking their lives, and that includes a lot of small children. The majority of people coming in small boats include small children. Um, that's a breach of human rights, international human rights, and international maritime laws. And um, they want to introduce a system where...
0: Okay, so... Thank you very much for coming to A Thousand Voices, Zita, how are you this evening?
1: I'm good, thank you very much for inviting me, it's much appreciated,
0: how are you? I'm all good, thank you very much. And yeah, when I come across the profile, I was like, we definitely got to get a Zita on here. So like I was just thank saying you. to you before we started this podcast, I interviewed Rianne from Black Girls Hike not too long ago, and then at the end of the interview, at the end of the interview sorry, Rianne was like, oh yeah, you've got to get a Zita on here. So I was like, okay, take care of very profile, and I was That's... like... Yeah, for sure. that's <laughs> So lovely,
1: and I think she posted somewhere on social media that she'd just done a podcast, and um she had been asked to name like a couple of people that inspire her, and she tagged us both in. I do know the other person that she tagged in as well, so that was really nice.
0: Yeah, 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 definitely. When I looked at her profile, I was like, wow, like you, you, you seem like you spent the majority of your life doing um activism campaigning that kind of work and um, pe- people like yourself I feel like you know I don't know if you get enough plaudits or enough pass- you know enough kind of plaudits and pats on your back and that kind of thing but I definitely feel like you need it because that's a very selfless career that you you have um, and it's really cool I love your profile and what you do so thank you so much thank for coming you. on thanks yeah. thanks for having me yeah anytime so just to start off with For people who may not know who you are, could you just give us a quick introduction into who you are and what you do?
1: So my name is Zita Holborn and I'm a community activist, a trade union activist, and human rights and equality campaigner and a multidisciplinary artist. So I'm an author, um, a visual artist, designer, curator, vocalist, performance poet, um, and have I left anything out, I sometimes wonder yeah. if I've left something out when I start, So, and, and I'm a writer, but obviously that's covered under being an author and
0: poet as well, yeah. That's, that's amazing, very multidisciplinary, disciplinary. like when I look to your profile, you've founded yeah. and been involved in all sorts of different organisations as well throughout your career, which yes. is really cool, and we're going to get into that in just a moment. But how I always like to start off with is to always take it back and set a bit of a foundation, you know, let people know where you've come from. Mm-hmm. So with you in particular, you know, you've spent the majority of your career involved in some kind of activism, some sort of campaigning. Um, well, I'd be interested to find out, just looking back at your upbringing and your childhood, mm-hmm. Would you? Is that? did you go through any sort of experiences or anything like that that you feel set you up for this sort of a career? Yeah, I think there
1: were a number of things. So sort of growing up in... Um, 70s and 80s in London, Um, I encountered quite a lot of racism, my family, my mum in particular, um, faced uh, racism and discrimination, but I think also um, sex discrimination as as well as race discrimination. Um, And so that kind of set me up because my mum would fight back. I don't mean physically fight, but she would argue with her words, you yeah. know, against any kind of injustice and discrimination. So that definitely had an influence on me. Um, my parents were part of the boycott campaign um, against uh, apartheid in South Africa. So that was kind of a learning thing from a very young age. Don't buy South African goods. We're boycotting. Mm-hmm. Why are we boycotting? Understanding that. Um, and you know a number of events based on sort of their political beliefs and things they stood up for and things they stood against those all those things influenced me and then when i was in my teens uh my dad lived in a number of different african and asian countries in african and asian regions and um he did work for the united nations on development projects undp And I think that experience of um, visiting different countries and seeing different cultures, but also... um, understanding and learning a bit actually there was quite a lot of instability in the countries he went to so I would be going somewhere for the summer holidays and a bomb would go off somewhere or there would be a civil wow. war breakout or something so that also gave me the, the understanding and the sort of development of my interest in human rights issues you know so that's part of the reason I went down um, that route. Um, And one of the countries he lived in when I was a teenager was Lesotho, and Lesotho is completely surrounded by South Africa. Mm, So I'd already had that experience of knowing that we boycott South African goods and why, but actually to get into Lesotho, you had to pass through South Africa. Um, And that gave me a a proper, like, first-hand experience of apartheid. Um, and that actually kind of speared me when I came back home and later on, a few years later, when I was studying, um, you know, beyond school in um, further education uh, to art schools to get really involved in the boycott campaign myself and organize protests and demonstrations and so on and try and get the, the whole of my art school to boycott South African goods. Yeah.
0: That's really interesting. And it's always interesting to hear people's backgrounds because I feel that everybody's background has played well always played a very major role in the person they are today. And some people may not necessarily recognise how much of a role their background has played. Some people like yourself, it sounds like you do recognize how much of a role your background has played and who you are today. You know, you've been a you know, seen been around the world and literally visually seen these injustices, bombs going off and things like that. Um and on top of that you've grown up in a household where your parents are actively involved in that sort of thing as well um speaking out um against any kind of injustice it, i guess it in a way it sort of seeped into a subconscious and it makes sense that um you're, you're who you are now you know you're involved in the type of work you are now i suppose doesn't it
1: yeah definitely and and i think you're quite right that you you not be thinking about that at the time or even recognize that's the case as you're going along it's kind of looking back on it then you realise that you could put all those things together. So I was kind of brought up with like a strong sense of standing up against injustice and standing up for your rights, and not just your own rights, but other people's rights. But at the same time, giving solidarity for other um, groups of people who um, are having to fight discrimination or injustice actually gives you some empowerment to think actually if I can if those people are standing up for their rights I can also do the same for me so they kind of inspire and empower at the same time even though you're giving solidarity to them
0: yeah that's really cool you know I I resonated with that in some degree where I haven't might not necessarily seen you know things visually the same way you've seen it but even when, when you read stories you know um, about, you can use some of the more famous activists, like the Martin Luther Kings and the Michael Mecks over in the US, and you read their kind of stories, it empowers you, and emboldens you as well. And you're like, wow, okay. Uh, you're inspired, first of all, and you think to yourself, if they were able to do it, why can't I do it? You know, what injustices, what injustices am I seeing in my everyday life, and in what way can I help, you know? Um, and that definitely, I mean, on the personal level, that helped me in some way. I, I read... Um, Luther King's book some time ago, um, and that's, you know, remained true in my head, and that definitely, I would say, has empowered and Im- empowered me, you know, it makes you, it inspires you, and it makes me want to, you know, it was kind of my, some of my uh, motivation behind 1,000 Voices as well, Or it helped me, pushed me, spread me on 1,000 Voices, it was like, okay, um, I wanted to start this, and there's a bigger mission behind it, you know, um, to challenge perceptions, and to you know, try and decrease wealth gaps and things like that long-term. But it's been empowered by the stories that I've read the people that I've come across as well on a personal level. Um, But that's, that's really cool hearing about your upbringing like that. So you mentioned that you went to university and you studied. I think. Did you say you went to universities and done the arts?
1: Yeah. So back in the in those days, they were called art schools. So they weren't. Mm. They were kind of standalone, independent. Now they're all part They they all called universities, but they were called art schools in those days. So I went to to two art schools, and I studied graphic design and the illustration.
0: Okay. What was the career plan then?
1: So. When I finished secondary school, I had two great loves, which I was actually torn between. And it was the creative, we're both creative, but one was writing, I had a passion for writing. And the other part was um, art yeah, and and design. So I was torn between the two. And um, I chose to go and follow the route of art in terms of um, my my studies but actually in um, going to an art school that focused on um, advertising and graphic design or go, going on a course, you know, which included advertising and graphic design, it actually does bring in some of your writing um, skills into into that work, mm-hmm. not just the, the art. Um, and it was the only art school that I recall where you had to actually submit a written paper um, to uh, as part of your, your process of interviewing and selection, which was interesting. So they were testing your written skills as well. Yeah. So I was always torn between the two and I think that's why I've kind of over the years gone back and forth between the two, but then I'm kind of doing a bit of all of it and fusing it all together now. Yeah.
0: Yeah, OK, uh, that's really cool. And let's talk art for a bit then. So I see you've got some lovely art pieces on your wall behind you. that um, look really cool. Thank With you. your art that you're doing now, what sort of stories do you try to tell through your art?
1: Um, well, those those two behind are two of my paintings. Um, but a lot of my art, not the, not the two you can see, but a lot of my art is described as quite political um, because, essentially, I document struggle, my lived experience and the campaigns I'm involved in, the things that I want to raise awareness of in terms of um, discrimination and human rights in particular, but workers' rights as well, because I'm a trade unionist, through, through arts. So that includes both the, the, the writing, the poetry and the, the visual art. Um, so there's a lot of art that I produce, which is forming part of posters and um, campaigns and flyers and is used to raise awareness. The thing about um, art is you can actually reach audiences that you might not have reached you might not otherwise reach with those messages Mm -hmm. um, because people won't come out to a rally or a march or they wouldn't come and see you talk on those things they don't feel it's something they're interested in but art kind of is provoking in a different way and hits people in different ways but also what your intention is in art you create can be very different to what people receive when they see it you know Mm -hmm. people people feel and think and receive different messages from seeing a piece of art as part of the beauty of it so i do a lot of political art um, i'm part of the unesco coalition of artists for the general history of africa um, which Is um, uh, again a multidisciplinary platform of artists who are global. Um, UNESCO um, originally wrote um, thirteen volumes of the entire history of Africa, Um, and they wrote these massive volumes. They realised that actually a lot of people don't, most people don't even know they exist, and they had this concept that. If they were to promote those volumes and people understood, and they particularly focus on young black people both on the continent and off the diaspora, um understood and recognized and knew about their really rich, incredible history going right back to the beginning of time, it would empower them um, and instill pride and strength in them to counter the racism. And the injustice that they face um today so they have this idea that using artists who you know like i said all different genres of artists but who have platforms um you know and perform or or um, exhibit or whatever they do with their art would be a great way of promoting the volumes um to the masses uh you know and in 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 different countries and different regions um globally so so i use my platform as an artist in in that way to promote promote the um unesco history of africa i also curate an art exhibition which has been running now for 10 years called the roots culture identity art exhibition um which was established by the Trade Union Congress Race Relations Committee, which I'm elected to, um, and was established as part of the Stephen Lawrence TUC Task Force recommendations. Because Stephen Lawrence had wanted to be an architect, um, one of the recommendations was that the Marble Hall, which is um, uh, part of the TUC headquarters, should be used Um, as a space to showcase the talents of young black people. And in the context of the trade union movement, black is used in a broader political sense so black and brown people, African Mm -hmm. and Asian people, um, and to give them a platform. And so we did it one year and then it was a success. So it's run for 10 years. So I coordinate and curate that exhibition every year and we try and tour it and get different opportunities. But during the pandemic, we've had to go um, virtual with the exhibition, which has also been interesting and good because it meant that we were able to last year make it an international um, exhibition, international artists participating and not just restricted to the UK.
0: That's amazing. And I resonate with what you said about the arts being a way in which you can reach other audiences. Like with the UNESCO, I, I, you mentioned the full name, it slits me, UNESCO Coalition, UNESCO Coalition of Artists for the General
1: History of Africa. It's really
0: long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, that's the one. You've got 13 volumes and, um, well, you've got an audience that would read, maybe might read through that. Then you've got another audience that would not necessarily have any exposure to that. They won't read that. But then you can reach that audience through art. And when we talk about the arts as well, because when you're talking about that what came to mind was music and I think about some artists who have used their platforms to share more political or conscious messaging through their music. You can talk like the Bob Marley's or the, the Nina Simones or the the Fella cooties or there's there's so many artists out there who have shed light on real issues through their music and they've reached untapped audiences basically people who would never have known otherwise. Mm. Um, so I think that's that's really important actually you know um um you know having um, you know the arts in general. I do think is important. I don't think maybe it's it's what's the word like highlighted or um, maybe even say respected the way it should be respected. Um, but definitely should be you know promoted and highlighted some more. And you spoke as well about the, the what's called the exhibition that you've been putting on for the past ten years. And you work primarily with black or black and brown artists to showcase their work within the arts in particular. How important do you feel representation is?
1: Representation is very important. Actually, one of my trade union roles, I have two trade union roles. I'm the National Vice President of the PCS Union, but also the Joint National Chair of the Artists Union of England. Um, And we know that there is uh, racism in the arts and culture sector, that 10 years of austerity plus the pandemic have impacted on all um like working class artists socially engaged artists but has a disproportionate impact on those who are are black but also on women and disabled artists um and so there were two two ways i think that we see repeatedly black artists are treated so they're either told that or your art is very black whatever that is quote unquote yeah, yeah so it's yeah. suitable for a black audience or it's suitable for black history well so it's hmm. not su- suitable for the mainstream or your art is too black and you need to like become more mainstream so you've got yeah. people in the sector trying to dictate and put to to black artists what art they should create Um, and then on the other hand, trying to pigeonhole them and say they're only suitable for a niche audience over here. So one of the campaigns, and a lot of my work crosses over into campaigning on rights for artists and racism in the arts and sexism in the arts, as well as, uh, you know, my work as an artist, as a uh, practising artist. So one of the campaigns my organisation, Barrack UK, ran was to get film Dear White People into cinemas Mm. in the UK because they wanted to send it straight to, um, you know, like Netflix, Blu-ray, whatever (laughs) at the time, and they said, oh, that it's just going to go straight to DVD. It's not going to be broadcast in the cinemas. And so um, a film, a black film distributor started to challenge and question that with the British Film Institute um and then decided that they would distribute this film and get it broadcast in in um the cinemas themselves but they needed they needed somebody to campaign so they came to, to our organization barrack uk and we campaigned we actually screened it in parliament as well wow. uh, and we did have Red carpet premiere premiere in Leicester Square. In fact, nice. my son was involved in organizing that premiere, and he also built the website for um the, the film premiere. But we had to we had to challenge this because they were saying it's um it's a film for black audiences, so maybe we'd show it in the cinema on Black History Month. We're like, hello, there's a clue in the title, it says Dear white people, where have you got the idea that it's for a black audience? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. so you know, this is what we're up against, it's just one example, but it's the kind of thing that we're up against and have to challenge all the time. So we're marginalised and we're pigeonholed, But, but you know, so it's a constant battle and we don't get the same opportunities and the same platforms as white artists you don't hear do you of white artists saying but all your portraits are of white people don't you think Mm, you need mm. to diversify that doesn't happen does it but if we were to paint all black people that's what they would be saying to us you know, they don't say, oh, well, there's a white history month." You could keep your paintings for the white history buff to a white person. But this is the kind of thing that we have to counter all the time. And actually, art is about freedom of expression. So most of the time when you create art, whether it's a poem, a song, um, a painting, a dance, it's coming from your heart and your soul and your yeah. guts. And where that comes from may be your lived experience, it may be something else, but the fact is you shouldn't have to define yourself by your race or your gender or undefine yourself because of those things.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. The best art definitely comes from lived experience. Like when I talk with, um, with me, because I love music. So when it comes, when I listen to music and my wife will tell you there's some songs I listen to and I'm like, yeah, this person wrote that from the heart. You feel it, like you mm. get goosebumps. Listen to that song, you're like, yes. Like there's one particular Bob Marley performance on YouTube that I watch over and over and over again. Um and I'm Which like hey. it? it's a long concert and he's doing No Woman No oh, Cry. Okay. Yeah? Um, it's a long, I forgot the name of the video, but it's like an hour and a half long. I would okay. just skip to where he does No Woman, No Cry. <laughs> uh, that's my favorite part. That's your favorite. So good. And I'm like, you could tell like he's on stage, his head's doing all this kind of stuff and that. Like he's just he's gone. He's tapped into something else and he's just singing mm. from the heart. And I love that kind of art. That's the best kind of art you can have. And, you know, yeah, I remember when I was in university, so I went to, I studied um, fashion business from my undergrad. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's very different because right now I'm working in finance. So people are always like, how did that happen? But long story. <laughs> but, yeah, we can but... be
1: diverse. We can do multitask <laughs> and do different things. Definitely, yeah.
0: definitely. But when I done my undergrad, so in my final year, we had to present, we had to do either dissertation or business plan. So I done a business plan. Mm. And I done it for uh, an African re- or a retailer saying African, like designs, that sort of thing. Um, and I remember I presented on there, I thought that the plan was solid, personally, presented on it, and then I was told, um, maybe I should try and do something a bit more mainstream. Mm. So similar to what you're saying there, that like people getting pigeonholed and then, you know, looking back now, I mean, I'm ashamed to think, ashamed to say I was like, thinking, hmm, okay, yeah, maybe I should change it around and think like that. What I was told, in particular, was that it's a trend, and I should I shouldn't like just hop on a trend because it might only really be good for a couple of years or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and then now, looking back now, because I'm a lot more strong sure myself now than I was back uh. then. They, they couldn't tell me that. <laughs> tell me yeah, trend. Like, that's ridiculous. That is, uh. it sounds absolutely crazy when you think about it like that. And it's, you can parallel it to what you're talking about: if artists getting pigeonholed. You're paying too many black people. Always oh, for black people. Um, but you don't get, white artists don't get that same sort of treatment at Mm. all, Um, which is not fair whatsoever. And you spoke about Black History Month, yeah? Mm. Maybe we can showcase Black History Month and blah, 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 and that kind of thing. Mm. I'm interested to know, what's your opinion on Black History Month?
1: Okay. Um, So when Black History Month was established here, the idea behind it was that it would kickstart a programme of 12 months of activity, starting with October. So I think that Black History should be for every month, like, you know, and every day of the year. It doesn't start and stop with Black History Month. But because of the society we live in, because of the discrimination we face, because of the fact that we've been written out of the history books and out of the curriculum, and that's another thing that I've campaigned on, Mm. keeping black historical figures Mm. on the curriculum, um, then actually it can play a very important role because it gives us a focus, it gives us an opportunity to share, it gives us an opportunity to celebrate, and actually it doesn't have to just be famous black historical figures. We can be celebrating Mm. the everyday unsung cheerers and heroes in our own communities or families, um, but the concern is is when there's a sort of tokenistic approach to Black History Month. Right? It's mm, Black History mm. Month, so we'll just do a day in, you know, um, for our business, and we, we've done that. We can tick the box, or schools do that, because no, we should be. Um, In every curriculum, not just the history curriculum, but every curriculum, and we should be there, we shouldn't be written out. So I have that kind of mixed feeling about it. And yes, when Black History Month happens, You know, I do a lot of events, I speak at a lot of things, perform at a lot of things. I actually, for a number of years now, have set myself a challenge of creating a piece of work on the theme of Black History for every day of Black History Month. For 31 days, I do some art every day. Um, And it could be just a quick, you know, something very quick, sketch, digital, whatever. But to to document our struggles and to celebrate um, our achievements Um, But I won't stop here at the end of the month, you know, I'm going to continue celebrating and promoting our history all year round.
0: It's really cool because recently I was having a discussion with someone about Black History Month and my thoughts on that was, one, I see the merit in it, I think it's good, you know, it's some time which we can use to highlight some figures and people and, yeah, events that may not have been highlighted whatsoever otherwise. However, um, I think, like you said, maybe it should have just been a starting point because for me, Black history is history. It's just history. We don't have like other group history month, it's just Black History Month. And um, you know, when we look at the you spoke with the UNESCO um oh, the UNESCO it's Coalition Artists. Yeah, 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 UNESCO Coalition Artists and we've got the encyclopedia with the, the 13 um, books of all of the history back then. You know, our history doesn't start and end with colonialism and slavery. Exactly. Um, and there's so much more that's happened before, around, and after that. That should be mm-hmm. included in history books, but it's just history. I don't think it should be like a defined month in of itself. Because mm-hmm. um, I feel like having that defined month, okay, great, it's good to highlight some, you know, some events and that kind of thing. But at the same time, I feel like it also kind of serves to, in a way, it's sort of like we marginalize us. We have our history month over here, and then the rest of the year is just, you know, we we'll, did we'll, we'll just call it history, it's not like a white history month or whatever, it's just history, but black history is history, there's black historical figures in Britain, in the world who have contributed very tangibly to our history, have contributed very tangibly to where we are now, in their local communities, on a wider scale, in all sorts of capacities. Um, and that's, yeah, I mean, I just feel like it's it's good in its merit, but maybe Uh, It shouldn't be its own month, it's just history, like you say. It's
1: it's used as a tick box exercise by institutions and corporations, and that's the problem. So what I'd like to see those organisations doing, um, and funders, you know, funding streams, is to say, okay, Yes, so we'll start in October, but that will kickstart a whole whole year programme that runs from October to September every year. Um, So we don't finish at the end of October, we keep going. But we launch our Black History programme for the year in October.
0: Yeah, and you know what, just thinking about it now, because another issue with it as well is that to be British isn't necessary to be black. It isn't to be white. British is just your nationality. It's not nothing to do with your color of your skin, whoever you are, and you're born here, that makes you British. Um, so to have like a separate Black History Month, I think it just, it's a bit uh, there's merits to it, but I think there's some downsides to it as well. And definitely, like you said, it should be um, you know, they should expand it throughout the year and it should just be incorporated into our normal curriculum as normal. So it's not like a thing, it's just normal. And I'll go a long way, um, in helping to eradicate some like um prejudices that people have in that as well, I think. Um, Just by teaching people. In Um, an
1: ideal society, it wouldn't be necessary um, if we didn't face the barriers and discrimination so on that we do. But I think because of the society we live in, then it becomes um, something that's important and it's interesting because of course, if you speak to people who are living in an African or a Caribbean country it is not a concept thats there. it's there in the USA, <laughs> it's in yeah. the UK. It's not really there in a lot of European countries, because when I speak to um, people in other European countries, you know, it's not a concept that they've ever come across a lot of the time. Um, but actually, they could do with it, too, having a whole, whole, whole programme, <laughs> yeah. And sort of decolonising and recognising, yeah, the, those histories. And like you said, that's the whole point with the UNESCO volumes, is that it goes right back to the beginning of time and the ancient african empires that have existed and that's the problem with how history is taught of african people in the uk they do want to start by saying you know we were slaves not even enslaved but we were slaves as if that's when we first came into existence which is just a nonsense obviously but yeah they it, it, I still think it plays an important role in kickstarting a year-long programme, yeah, and it's, yeah. it's a, a strong and important reminder of people that we are here, we have achieved, and yeah, we should be honoured and recognised.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let's talk about Barrack. So when you sw- you spoke about your arts exhibition, what's interesting, you said that you started that about 10 years ago, and it sounds like that coincided with you co founded Barrack as well, because Barrack was about 10 years ago, was it? So
1: Barrack is um, 12, 12 years ago almost, so mm. 2010, so a bit longer. Um, yeah, Barrack UK, I co founded with Lee Jasper in the summer of 2010. Um, and that was at the point that we, we had a general election and we were expecting Tories to win that election. And they were, and obviously it became a condemn coalition, um, but they were announcing all sorts of programs of cuts that they were going to introduce. And um, I was concerned that this would mean that we're going to see really huge um, impacts, negative impacts on black communities. And as a trade unionist, I'd already been campaigning on the impact of cuts and relocations and redundancies, which were already having disproportionate impacts on black workers. Um, And I could foresee what they were announcing or, you know, proposing uh was going to have really devastating impacts that went beyond just black workers impacted on service provision and impacted on our communities and at the same time lee um had uh, said oh we need to monitor this situation so i responded he said who, who helped me monitor this situation so i responded say so actually we need to do more than monitor We actually need to campaign against this and so that's how barrack uk was born so we were established initially as an anti-austerity organization but focused on um black communities service users um and workers again using black in its broadest political sense Mm -hmm. and um as as we developed actually we found that hand in hand with the impacts of austerity came deepening racism deepening injustice faced by black communities then the scapegoating of migrant communities and the horrific treatment of refugees so what we did you know at the start has broadened our remit has broadened and we involved you know on in international campaigns, global campaigns, as well as campaigns in the UK, but taking in all of this. And um, for for nearly ten years now, we've also been coordinating humanitarian aid um, convoys and missions to refugees because we believe in like practical solidarity. Yeah. So at the same time, we're campaigning for refugee rights. And against the horrific treatment which actually has a direct link the sort of flip side to that is the windrush scandal which has been another major issue that we've been campaigning on again we've been campaigning on the windrush scandal since 2012 way before it was even called or known as the Windrush scandal, we were warning this was going to happen because of new immigration laws that had been brought in at that time, which we were also campaigning and opposing. So, yeah, so all of those things, um, supporting family justice campaigns, um, families who have lost loved ones at the hands of the state or through um, racist murders, Uh, forms part of our work, so it's quite broad-ranging in terms of what we do, but in the beginning it was with a focus on austerity and cuts.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure, definitely Um, broad-ranging. When I was looking into it, you you and um, Lee and the team cover a load of different areas and it's amazing, the work that you guys do. Um, hats off to you and the team. Um okay. we spoke about the Wind Rush. So let's touch on that. Um, well Wind Rush just deportations mm-hmm. um in general, which is a, a crazy. Some of the stories I read about that I think are absolutely crazy. Um and it's just another another what's the word, like a, another form of institutional racism, systematic racism. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just nuts, you know, when I read about what's happening there. And you, Barak, you know, and your team are playing a key role campaigning against some of these injustices that some of these people are facing. Um, On that side of things, wind rush and deportations, can you speak about maybe a bit more about your work in that area? And for people, because I feel like the average person who doesn't, isn't clued up myself, I'm not not saying I'm 100% clued up, but the average person that isn't clued up about that kind of thing probably thinks that it's it's humane. You know, they just, the person will have ample, uh, what's the word, ample notice and then you know, they got time to sort themselves out, then they go. Um, But oftentimes it isn't done in such a humane manner. So speak about your work in that area and some of the injustices that people are facing in that area as well. Yeah, so to go back to
1: when we sort of really first became aware of this so as a trade unionist i have been campaigning against deportations for a number of years and supporting through our trade unions individuals who had fled persecution in a range of different countries for example like places like zimbabwe Um, so it wasn't it was something that was familiar with deportations but this was not the mass deportations where lots of people are piled onto one plane this was Individuals being taken on commercial flights. so I was familiar with campaigning against those types of deportations and supporting individual campaigns. Um, and then, after we established Barrack, the government wanted to introduce amendments to the Immigration um, Act, Act. So, they brought in a bill which we could see was going to impact on all sorts of people. So, um, overseas students. New migrants coming in, but also established established migrant communities who second you know have been here now for two or three generations. And that included what became known you know, as we know commonly as the Windrush Generation, um, and uh, who were impacted by the Windrush scandal. So barack co-founded a campaigning group called Movement Against Xenophobia to campaign against that. But we also ran um, a billboard campaign, which was on tubes and trains and buses called I Am An Immigrant with real people Who migrated to the UK, black and brown people talk saying, you know, I'm a bus driver, I'm a nurse, I'm a lawyer, um, and I came to this country from this country as an immigrant, and this is what I contribute to British society to try and counter the sort of negativity and racism and scapegoating of migrant communities, alongside trying to influence the bill um, in you know in a positive way because of what was being introduced. But we've gone full circle with that because we have now the nationality and borders bill which is even more draconian wanting to introduce even you know uh, more um harsh aspects to the hostile environment so Mm -hmm. we were warning that this was going to impact on um The Windrush generation, and this is not just talking about people from the Caribbean, but that Windrush generation are people from across African and Asian regions, as well as the Caribbean region, who came to the country from Commonwealth or former Commonwealth countries, invited to the UK um, in the 1950s and 1960s. It's a, a you know a huge number of people that were impacted by this. So we. We came aware one day of this mass deportation flight that was going to Jamaica so we started questioning that but we, literally we had like we only knew days before so we started campaigning on that flight and i wrote this piece for the guardian at the time um i think that was in 2016 which was entitled how can 50 people be snatched because literally that's what it was um we they the government were going for what I would describe as low-hanging fruit. People complying mm. with the system who were known who might be signing in, but then as as the scandal unfolded, what we found is there were lots of people that may have left the UK for a holiday and gone back to the country that they were born in. Often it would be something they've never they haven't been back or you know since they left, mm. but they've gone to a funeral or wedding or you know some big occasion like that. Um, why they've gone, they were allowed to leave the country. But when they tried to return, they were told, you haven't got legal papers. You can't come in. Um, the, when people were invited during that 1950s, 1960s period, they were told, um, you know, this is the mother country, you are British citizens. We want you to come and help the country recover and work post world war II. Um, but you're coming, this, this is your mother country now part of the british empire so nobody who came thought okay well i've got an illegal status so i need to regularize my status or i need to do something because they were allowed to come in and many people came in um if they were children they came on parents grandparents aunts uncles siblings passports they never even had a passport of their own Mm -hmm. um and so when the government started targeting them people didn't really necessarily come forward one because one they didn't know until it happened and it was too late Mm -hmm. that there was this issue and two because they really felt there's a stigma attached to that you know, yeah. so it wasn't comfortable, easy to come forward and speak out about it. And then you had this group of people been exiled essentially and not allowed to fly back. And that was even harder for them to try and fight their case, you know, when they're not even in the UK. Um, people lost all their possessions, they lost their houses, they lost their jobs, they lost their livelihoods. Some people lost their lives because it made them ill. Um, what they went through, but not only the people that were targeted, their entire families, because entire families had to put their lives on hold, fighting for justice, trying to raise raise money for um, legal fees and flights to go, you know, to to their family if they were deported or um, detained um in another country so all of this was happening um, the Windrush scandal as we know broke out and became known as such the government apologized as if that all made it okay mm. but the reality is people's right lives have been ruined some people have been going through this for 10 and 20, 20 10 to 20 years um, and so then they introduced a compensation scheme and then even if they came back to the UK They've lost everything. So their house is gone. If they Mm -hmm. were, let's say they were a council tenant that had social housing, that's long gone. You know, their possessions, unless their family were able to grab their possessions and store them somewhere, they've lost all of that. Um, They may have lost pensions and jobs and wages, all of those things having to start again from scratch. Um, And of course, it ages you and stresses you having gone through all of that as well. Um, They've missed out on seeing grandchildren grow up you know, be born and grow up, all sorts of things. So... The compensation that the government's supposed to pay out, the vast majority haven't. So one of the things that we're campaigning on now is the fact that that compensation needs to be accessible, because the process of applying for it means that you need legal support and representation to do that. So that's another barrier to getting it. Um, and the process is complicated. And one of the things that people had to do when the, when the scandal unfolded and got exposed was they were told that they've got to show evidence and proof of every year of schooling, work, and where they lived, and that might be 40 or 50 years worth of evidence that they're what? expected to produce for every year. The vast majority of us would not have a document or a paper to prove every single year. I wouldn't have mm. school documents now, do you know to yeah. to prove where I went to school and every year I was at my school. Um, and. At the same time the government tore up the landing cards which would have given that evidence and proof and destroyed them so they're going through a living hell trying to produce all this paperwork and even for the compensation they've got to produce some evidence and paperwork um it's you know the compensation is not just for that individual but their family if their family also suffered the detriment financial detriment as a result um and so the vast majority of people haven't got the compensation yeah some people have died so they're not never going to receive it because they've died and on top of that the government are targeting the children the grandchildren the descendants of the Windrush generation for mass deportations. Um, And people get very little time um, when they're going to be uh, detained between being detained and actually deported. And in that time, they've got to try and get legal support, legal representation. So one of the things we do is try and help people, guide them and give them advice. And if they want to um, sort of have their campaign in the public domain because not everybody does it as a way of keeping up the pressure then sometimes we lead those campaigns or just support them to get that exposure and put them in touch with the media and help them you know with, with running the campaign um and it's just never ending so to, to me, this is an extension of the Windrush scandal, because the people that they're targeting now, even though they're saying, oh, well, they're not the Windrush generation, in reality, they wouldn't be in the UK if they're linked to the UK. It wasn't the enslavement of African people, the British Empire, colonial rule, and their their parents or grandparents having come here because they were invited, because there wouldn't be a link or a reason to come to the UK. Um, and mid- many of the people that they're targeting are people that have um criminal convictions but they've been demonized in a way that somebody who was born in the uk wouldn't um and some there are young people who under Joint enterprise Mm. which is now defunct ended up with a, a criminal record um there are people that have never Got a criminal record, young black people who, under Operation Nexus, if they're repeatedly stopped and searched, can be deemed to have have um, done the crime they're being stopped wow. for, and not never been tried or gone through the criminal justice system, and also deported. And so you don't hear very much about those groups of people. What we see is screaming headlines by the government that these are the worst kind of criminals, guilty of the most severe crimes. But when you look at an entire flight that they're deporting, you might find there's one or two people that fall into that category. Um, And then the the majority of the others um, are not. And they may have, whatever they did, it could have been a burglary, for example, a theft that they did years and years and years ago. Um, They have been punished for their crime. They've been rehabilitated, they've gone back out in society, living their life and living a good life and a decent life. But it's a triple punishment, essentially, because if you were born in the UK, um, that wouldn't happen to you. You would be able to serve your time, be punished for your crime and then live your life after. And so it's directly racist to target people in this way and then to label them and demonize them in that way as well. Yes, yeah, so this is an ongoing campaign. This hasn't gone away, and all through the pandemic, mm. they've actually increased the number of mass deportations what? that they've been doing, yeah. um, and it's included um, the Caribbean, it's included people from West African countries, um, from uh, uh, South Asia, um, China. So they've been targeting lots of black and brown people, basically, for these mass deportations. And a lot of people that are from Zimbabwe, families who came to the UK um, from Zimbabwe, actually fled um, persecution, Um, you know, and all of those things are ignored in terms of the reasons why people have fled the countries they fled in the first place.
0: That's crazy, because it's not reading the news like that anymore. And um, when you say it's actually been increased recently, I did not know that. That's yeah. very crazy. And when you paint the picture like that, it, it sounds so, like, I don't even know how to put it, like, so disgusting, so inhumane, like, it's, so, it's unhuman, you know, to do that to people. It's very crazy. Um, and I've heard some crazy stories personally, you know, like, I've heard of people who um, who have had maybe had a criminal record, and then the police or whoever will tell them, Give us, tell us this, otherwise we're going to deport you. I've heard of stories of like um, mothers and children being split up, children going to stay in social services instead of going to stay with their family. For what reason? That serves nobody. That, uh, you know, it's literally said you're deporting the mum who didn't even know she was going to get deported that day. You're taking the child and putting them into social service instead of letting the mum call her family. Um, I've heard, like, the story you, you, when you talk about people have gone back home for oh, an occasion of some sort and then they can't come back and they're being told, okay, show us the last 40 years. of." Nobody has that kind of documentation laying around. It's not something you routinely keep. Um, it's like they're making it uh, very purposely, practically impossible for someone to prove, um, for someone to, and even to go and claim the money that they are rightly owed as well. Um, very, very, very difficult for someone to actually go and do it. Um, and people have died, you, like you said, people have passed away. That's very, very crazy. It sounds inhumane, and the most most people are not going to know about. that. I mean, people may know about deportations, but they don't know about the intricacies about how bad and inhumane it can be. Uh, is that even legal for them to do these kind of things?
1: Well, they have laws and policies that allow it to happen, but um, if you look at human rights legislation, international human rights law, um, it's very often in conflict with those laws. Um, And so some people have won their cases, or a lot of people have won their cases on grounds of human Rights and the right to family life, because nobody's thinking. You've mentioned the children. The majority of people being deported have British-born children, British partners. In fact, sometimes they have British parents and British mm-hmm. siblings, and they may have been the one person that didn't have their status regularised. And the reason for that is it costs a lot of money, hundreds of pounds. So if you're struggling, let's say you're struggling single parents, you've only got one income coming in, and you've got Three or four children, the cost of regularising your status then all your children. It might be that last child you hadn't got to is the one that yeah gets, gets targeted. Um, so it's an unfair system. And um, we had in in the midst of the Windrush scandal, the government saying that people could parent their children by Skype.
0: What? <laughs> yeah. By Skype. Oh my by God. Skype.
1: Yeah. So you're going to walk your child and hug them by Skype. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that, that just shows how they don't even think we're human beings, that Skype is sufficient to to, to raise your child by Skype. That, that's, that's an okay um, thing to do. But under the new Nationality and Borders Bill that's been proposed, which has been opposed quite strongly in the House of Lords, um, but in the House of Commons it's a different case, Um, The government wants to push through legislation that introduces offshoring of refugees who um, arrive by small boat. And we've seen just now recently about what they want to do in terms of processing people. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's a breach of human rights. Um, They want to push small boats of refugees back into the English Channel, risking their lives. And that includes a lot of small children. The majority of people coming in small boats include small children. Um, That's a breach of human rights, international human rights, and international maritime laws. And um, they want to introduce a system where citizenship could be um, revoked without any um, notice. Um, or recourse which ha- potentially can impact on millions of people because it's people who either were not born in the UK or people who have a parents that wasn't born in the UK that could be impacted by this. And that's just some of the the aspects of that law. So there's, you know, this is ongoing. So if they were really serious about learning lessons from the Windrush scandal, um, taking forward the recommendations in the Windrush Lessons Learned um, report and trying to put right the wrongs that they did, they wouldn't be trying to force through even worse legislation because essentially what they want to do now is Windrush scandal again but on an even larger scale impacting on even more people.
0: And in all of this is like um, this they, they fail to recognise um, first of all, maybe their role in why people are escaping from the countries that they're escaping, like you mentioned as well. Um, and what people are escaping from. I mean, if someone's prepared to cross the channel in a small boat or something like that, they must be desperate. They must be really wanting to get away from some kind of a bad situation. Um, but like that they don't care. Now nah, push you out on the boat back into the, into the channel or send you off to Rwanda or something yeah. like that. Something ridiculous. Um, it is it, completely inhumane um complete lack of humanity and it's so crazy um when we talk about these kind of things. And you know, I feel like with this this when we talk about like institutionalized racism, because that's one form of it. There's so many forms of it. There's so many different ways and yeah, so many different things, you know, and so many different areas which you know you could delve into when we talk about that kind of thing. Um, from policing to education to all sorts of things. One thing that happened, that was the big story when it happened, was the, the Grenfell Tower collapse. Um, well, Grenfell Tower, that whole situation, um, which I feel is like another form of institutionalized racism. In a way, it's um, it's uh, what's the, an example of how it's failed people and how it can lead to countless people dying. Um, and as of right now, I'm not 100% sure, but, um, you know, how... If there was, what kind of aftercare there was, you know, if everybody has been rehoused or not, I'm not too sure. I know there was all sorts of different organisations that were trying to do something to help out. And you um, found, or one of the founding members for an organisation as well, the BME Lawyers for Grenfell. Um, I was reading recently that one of the main charities, I've forgotten the name, um, but then there was a review done on them and they were found to be institutionally racist, which is crazy. That that's the charity that's meant to be helping these people, and a BBC it was on BBC I read it, so it's not like some independent newspaper. If it's on the BBC, they must have been really bad. Like for the BBC to report, okay, they're racist, they're institutionally racist, and they're expected to help primarily black and black and brown people um, in this this thing, which is very the Grenfell thing. I think was one of the craziest things in my lifetime so far um, that I've heard. And I remember when I went, I went down there maybe on the second or third day. And it was like something I've never seen before. Uh, The way I describe it, it was like it was complete anarchy. There was no, there's no authority figure there. There was no government figure, there was no police, there was no fire people, there was nothing like that. It was literally the people. So the people were down there organizing. The people were down there calling and calling hotels and organizing trucks to bring food back and forth and people driving from all over the country, organizing everything. It was obviously very disjointed because there's no there's no authority figure there, but it was crazy. And then you got like groups of people in the street who were, you know, obviously very very rightly so angry and upset at what's happened. Um, it was just it was just so much happening. It was so crazy. Um, and then I remember thinking it just shows us like a complete disdain for these people if you haven't even. But haven't even bothered to send over haven't even bothered to try and organize something it's down to people to try and organize and try and you know help in whatever way they can help um with that particular situation and just you know looking at all these other forms of institutionalized racism you know deportations and youir scandal etc um can we expect these institutions like how can we expect them to have our best interests at heart can we trust them
1: no we can't trust them institutional racism and systemic racism have been around for a long long time um and if these organizations are not honest with themselves and actually take proper steps to address um the issues of racism that exist in their structures and their walls and their systems then nothing's going to change in a hurry and you're right the situation with Grenfell was horrific we called out BME lawyers for Grenfell which is a coalition of race equality organizations that have been working and individuals that have been working together for years on the on a campaign against racism and injustice um we recognized that it was racist from the very very start and that's why, you know, we came forward and said, yes, we need to to speak out, amplify the voices of those who are impacted, um, until, you know, they they are able to do that. Because obviously, they were going through trauma, they were displaced, um, and like you said, they were left to their own devices. And if it wasn't for the community coming out. And you know, community locally, of course, played a crucial role. But communities more broadly gave solidarity and practical support as well. There would have been nothing in place for them because it took such a long time. It took like putting pressure, you know, going to the mainstream press, raising it in Parliament, for um, the infrastructure, government infrastructure, to be even begin to start to be in place to try and support people. And I can remember meeting with people and doing meetings and people were being sent from pillar to post. And we're like, well, people can't just be going. They've got nothing. They've lost everything. You can't expect them to be going up and down and all over the place around the borough to try and navigate these things. You're going to have to go to them. You need to sort out accommodation. Even the accommodation was horrific. People were being put in some really horrible B and Bs without proper facilities when they've got little children um, and you know no facilities to feed them, no space for them to play, no space even, you know, for them, not even adequate space for a whole family just being stuffed into one room um and really really poor service and support even when they started to do the consultation meetings we challenged that and called it out because they were doing these these consultation meetings in fact they went to do one with the the tower actually in view so the tower was looming over the venue where they wanted to hold a consultation meeting they didn't think about that mm-hmm. but they also took them to sort of the edge of the borough where people would have to travel outside of an area they're familiar with and would be difficult in the circumstances um they had no language translation skills they had nobody from different faiths to support people you know counseling services and we were pointed all these these are basic things in a trauma situation in a crisis like this you can't expect people to come out and you don't have all of these services and support and i remember sitting in the public area next to a woman who was just crying but she pulled her eyes out and she said how she lost she you know she'd lost her family and i remember sitting there just with my arm around her and holding her hand and she had no one she was by herself and we were also saying there are um people culturally not going to come to an event like this women who won't, won't travel here so you can't expect everybody to come to you you're going to have to go to where people are and their attitude was just so cold and uncaring given the trauma that people have been through. You know, people who've lost loved ones, and then people who've lost everything, all their possessions. Some people who have survived, but their entire families, you know, several generations of families, are wiped out in the fire. It was a horrendous situation. But in the lead up to that fire, people living in Grenfell Tower have been warning repeatedly of the problems and the issues. Um, and yeah, it really, I really felt it, of course, I'm not living through what they're going through. So I can never feel it on that level. But when my son was, um, born, I lived in a tower block, which was found to have the same cladding.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it kind of hits you. This could have been me and my child that this happened to. Yeah. Wow. And you know, that's the other thing we found so many buildings in the UK have that cladding. And then that was a long process to even try and get that addressed. There's still buildings with with this cladding on. And we still have substandard inadequate housing. The reason why um, black and brown people have contracted and died, one of the key reasons, there are multiple reasons, have contracted and died of COVID during the pandemic. One of those reasons is where people live. People who are living in deprived areas and in inadequate and poor housing and overcrowded housing, um, because they they live in poverty because of institutional racism in the labour market, then they live in the poorest housing and the poorest areas with the biggest cuts to funding. So all of these things have a knock-on impact on every aspect of our lives.
0: It's literally how institutional racism basically can just lead to death, like in this worst-case scenario. Um... Yeah it's terrible in every way shape and form all right so uh before we go into quickfire questions um i'd like to ask you so what do you think needs to happen for us to live in a more equal society well
1: we need racism to end but we need all discrimination to end because we're not just one thing you know we're um we, we, we are women, we're disabled, we're LGBT+, plus. Yeah? we're young, we're old, so we face double and multiple discrimination mm-hmm. as Black people. So, you know, getting rid of one form of discrimination is not going to get, get rid of everything else that we face, there's multiple impacts on us. So actually, we need a more equal society for everybody, for for racism to end. Everybody benefits from that if racism ends anyway. Um, Poverty goes hand in hand with discrimination. Um, Austerity and cuts, when they happen, um, lead to a rise in fascism. History tells us that happens every time. Um, When fascism rises, that empowers those who hold racist views to act upon their racist views and emboldens them so all of these things have a knock-on impact so that's why we poverty has to end yeah as well as racism ending at the same time but we also need the legacies of colonialism and empire and enslavement to be addressed so that means we need decolonization one of the things that allows institutional racism and systemic racism to thrive is um, the legacies of colonialism so those things need to be acknowledged and addressed so there's not an easy solution um but i also think that racism is a global a global issue so if we can't solve it in one country and then allow it to continue in another country and it impacts on all of us world over. So because for those people who are living in an African or Caribbean country, doesn't mean to say the racism doesn't exist and those legacies don't exist, they do. And we are talking about people fleeing countries to come to the UK. Um, And key reasons why people are fleeing those countries are climate change, persecution, conflict, and poverty. And sometimes Mm. it's a combination Of all of those things, because um, most people who face climate displacement are displaced in their own country initially. So they can't, so people who live off the lands um, can no longer do that. They're forced into city areas and town areas which were already overcrowded, which then um, uh, creates a situation of conflict and poverty, and then means that people have to flee their country. But when we look at those countries that they're fleeing from, they they are countries where um, they're countries that were colonised by Europeans, or they're countries where there were illegal wars, illegal op- occupations during conflict. So they're effectively countries where the West have um, interfered in those countries and created that um division and poverty and conflict in the first place and then you have european countries saying we're full up countries like the uk they Mm -hmm. can't come in Mm -hmm. if we look at for example what's happening with ukrainian refugees what's happened to them is absolutely horrific i mean it's it's terrible Mm -hmm. um they've been completely displaced they're going through all, all sorts of horrendous things but actually the way that they've been received in the uk is quite different to black and brown people when they're displaced because of conflict mm-hmm. so you know you've got eurostar an airline saying you can travel for free in contrast um you know other refugees are having to hide on lorries or go on those small boats that we've been talking about you've got um Airbnb and hotels saying we'll give you accommodation, restaurants saying come in. Well, one of the key things we do in our work with refugees is to supply um, food and ingredients for cooking to the refugee community kitchen, which is a charity in Northern France. But before that, we used to work directly when there was an infrastructure with refugees to bring cultural and religious um, food. Yeah, sorry, sorry, food that meets cultural and religious needs for different communities. And supply them with the ingredients so that they can make their own cultural food. Um, And so we are fundraising for aid then we're taking that aid um, there and then people are being given solidarity meals by a charity because they've got no other choice which is not the most dignified way to receive food nobody wants to receive their food in that way if they could Mm, help it but in contrast ukrainian refugees are saying come into restaurants come into hotels and you know we'll give you meals in a dignified um way, in a a nice surrounding, not being beaten up and kicked by the police and threatened by the police. Sometimes that food has to be distributed in the sanctuary of a church or a mosque because of the brutality that refugees are facing, but also um, people like ourselves doing that work are also threatened. So when we take aid, we are um, racially profiled, we've been stopped under the Terrorism Act, we've been barred from going into France, Mm. Uh, we've been stopped and searched by police in between border control. They look for refugees in our vehicle, and they've even asked Mm. us, are we the same people going back that came out, i.e., are we refugees smuggling ourselves oh into gosh. the UK? So this is the contrast and difference in treatment. So when we talk about inhumanity, that difference of treatment has to change. If somebody's displaced and they're a refugee, then why isn't there that that response to all refugees that we're seeing to Ukrainian refugees? We know the reason, but that's another inequality and stark difference of treatment so unless we're treated as equal human beings in society across society and globally then racism is not going to go away
0: well so much to digest so so much to digest but yeah thank you for that uh really appreciate that so let's go into some quick fire quick fire question yeah. we've got 10 questions here for you and yeah, just whoever comes to your head first. Okay. <laughs> you out. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, cool. First question, what's your favourite movie?
1: Now, that's weird, because I don't know if this is the, my favourite movie, but literally what was on my tongue when you asked that question is The Colour Purple. So I'm going to say The Colour Purple, because it's what came straight into my mind. Right.
0: Great, we'll go with The Colour Purple. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next. What's your favourite book?
1: Oh, that's really difficult. Um, I haven't got a favourite book. I can't pin one book down. Um, but you know what? I'm going to wriggle out of that one by saying my favourite book is my book that I wrote, Striving for Equality, Freedom and Justice. And not because I think it's the best written book in the world and better than any other author. It's because it's my baby. It's my life. It's documenting all of my struggles and history in poetry and it, a lot of love went into yeah an emotion went into creating that book so that's why that's my favorite book
0: great all right next name a song that you can never get bored of
1: oh one song oh no that's um that's really difficult to pin down one song but what i will say is one artist if i can cheat yeah yeah
0: Yeah, and that is
1: stevie wonder and stevie wonder I grew up with Stevie Wonder. My mum had every single album. So I feel like Stevie Wonder is the soundtrack of my life. Yeah? yeah. Because one song that I hear Stevie Wonder can conjure up a moment in my lifetime, which could be, you know, years ago when I was a small child, because I can remember what was happening by that one song playing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, great. He got that really good album, it's like Songs in the Key of Love, I think it's called. Life. Yeah, life, Songs That's in the Key, key of one. Life. Yeah. That, that album is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> great. All right, next. If you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Um Curry
1: chicken and
0: rice and peas and plantain. Great. <laughs> How do you start your day? Um.
1: Oh, my gosh, that's a really, really bad thing that I do starting my day. I look on my phone, <laughs> which Absolutely. is a bad habit that I need to stop <laughs> because I look on my phone then I get caught up in something, you know, responding yeah. to an email or something and not, not doing all the things of starting my day that I should be doing. Yeah.
0: That's that's better than looking at social media first thing in the morning. So well, <laughs> well, social
1: media might be one of the things I see on my oh. phone. It might be an email, <laughs> it might be a message, or it might be a social media or a news article. It could be anything on my phone that, that's popped up in my alerts. That I see.
0: Oh, yeah. it's okay, I'm not judging. <laughs> <laughs> I do the same. <laughs> okay, name three people that inspire you. Um. Okay, three people. Yeah.
1: Okay, so one of them is on has been on this screen.
0: Oh is it?
1: <laughs> yeah, Diana Abbott. I oh, think she's yeah. gone through hell. She's she treated horrifically, and she is still standing, still there, still standing up for our rights, still speaking out for us. Um so yeah, I, I really, really admire um Diane Abbott. And then I would say as as sort of yeah, I'm going to name two people who really inspire me because they lift me up. They've been there side by side all through the Barrack journey, are there every day campaigning and working with me. And they're like my, you know two of my, my closest friends, but also my comrades and activists. And they're really strong um, activists in their own right. They're trade unionists. And that is um, uh, Donna Guffrey and Hector Wesley who are barrack officers who are like my partners in crime and in arms in everything I do as a campaigner.
0: That's amazing. Okay, next question. What's the best advice that you've ever received?
1: The best advice? Yeah. The best advice. I would say um, the best advice was advice I gave myself When I was in my early twenties, that was that in order to like have a positive life and a positive outlook, I needed to learn to love myself, and that was the start of my journey of self-care. Before self-care came became like a kind of buzzword, you know, and people referring to self-care as they do now. Um, I recognized I needed self-care in order to heal I needed to love myself in order to heal and be able to move forward um, you know and and not leave the pain that I'd experienced that f- so far in my life behind but learn how to to live with it and progress in my life and do something for myself.
0: That's great. all right next one this might be an obvious one for you but if you were to dedicate the rest of your life to a charitable cause, what would you pick? Baric UK. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> I knew, knew it would be an obvious one for you. All right. We're on the last two. What's the kindest thing that somebody's ever done for you?
1: The kindest thing? Yeah. Oh. That's not, that's not easy to just pinpoint one kindest thing. But in general, what I would say, the thing that strikes me the most of any kindness is the kindness of strangers.
0: Mm,
1: mm. Yeah? Because in that moment, like, it just generally in life, I'm suspicious when I'm outside. You know, you're always thinking, is somebody racist? Is yeah, there yeah, racist? Yeah. What's their intention? I'm, I'm always suspicious. And the fact that sometimes somebody is a complete stranger to you can come to your rescue or come and help you or give you a compliment um yeah that that really strikes me and it touches my heart when that happens every time perhaps i should actually we should be a society where kindness is the norm and actually we take that as a given way for us always to behave towards each other but I also think it's a good reminder when that happens. Do you know what I mean? To stop and, hmm. and be kind be to ourselves and be less suspicious as well of people.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Perfect. And last question. What's one thing people don't know about you?
1: One thing people don't know
0: about me? Yeah. Oh. One thing people don't know about me. It could be like one thing that maybe... That maybe people close to you know, but a general person might not know.
1: Oh gosh, I can't think of one thing. Not not that everything's out there. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. What be a one thing? I've mentioned the stuff that um I do, and lots of things is out there in the the public. That's a really difficult mm-hmm. is, question yeah. to answer. One thing. One thing. One thing. Um.
0: I used to live in California. I guess that's not a common no, thing. Oh, that's, yeah. that's nice, nice weather. Nice here. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <A> bit boring, <laughs> but yeah. I, I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's amazing. That's really cool. That's really cool. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming to the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And you know what? Yeah, I feel like I can talk to you for hours. <laughs> I literally yeah. didn't just, just speak yeah. for hours It's like, like hours. a
1: nice little chat
0: this is isn't it literally literally Mm -hmm. yeah so i really appreciate you coming on um and sharing yeah sharing your story sharing a lot of learnings i thought there's so much we could take away from this conversation as well so thank you so much really appreciate it uh Mm -hmm. before we close uh have you got anything you want to say like any last remarks and also where can people keep up to date with the work you do your own your art your artistry and barrack if they wanted to as well
1: okay Um, well first of all thank you for having me on it you know it just got like a really comfortable and really good and interesting conversation so thank you for making it just very relaxing in that way and um for including me in this project congratulations and well done to you for taking up this initiative and for the work that you're doing um in terms of yeah how people can um, find us, Barrack UK is B A R A C UK as in United Kingdom. So, if you just Google that or put that into any social media platform, it will come up Instagram, um, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all the usual. We've got a website there as well. Um, we've got several petitions running, um, a crowdfunder. So, if you look on our website, um, that that also has quite a lot of information about what we do and campaigns that we're running. But we do use social media a lot to update on our campaigns. So if you follow us on social media, you're going to get the updates. Um, In terms of the work I do in the arts, um, my website is www.zetaholborn.com. so it's just my name.com. And again, on social media, I've got um, a page on Facebook, on Instagram, it's at Zita Barrack UK. And so a lot of my art is on there. But I also have a YouTube channel which has quite a lot of my performance poetry but also quite a lot of the campaigning videos and, and things on there as well. So yeah we're we're out there. I think kind of like if you Google Barrack UK or you Google me you basically find all the bits and pieces of the different campaigns we're involved in. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Okay, that's that. So thank you once again for coming to the podcast, Zita. Really, really appreciate it. This is A Thousand Voices. That was Zita Holborn. And until next time, we're out. Okay, and that's the interview done. 15 gone, 985 to go. We're edging ever close to that 1,000. It's always good to hear back from the community. So drop us a comment or leave us a review wherever you're listening to this and let us know your thoughts about this episode and any key takeaways. Next week, as always, we're going to have another very special guest on the podcast, another very inspirational guest on the podcast. And if you'd like to see some previews from the episode, then follow us on our social channels at 1000VoicesUK. We'll be dropping some clips and little snippets before the episode comes out. The next episode will be dropping next week, Tuesday, as they do every single Tuesday. And the full YouTube video will follow a few days afterwards. So please do subscribe to us on all platforms. It really, really does help us in trying to amplify the voices of the people that we speak to. But that's that for now. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. That was Zita Holborn. This is 1000 Voices. And until next time, people, we're out.